So, Dale, I don't know how much you know about therapy, but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. I thought there'd be couches and Kleenex and shit. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. Do you want to talk about some of those feelings? I love you. Obviously, you don't know me. So how is this supposed to work? You sit, I sit, we talk. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam. And I'm Dr. Fran. Welcome to Freudian Scripts. The podcast where we put your favorite TV shows and movies on the hypothetical couch to take a deeper dive into the way psychology is portrayed. We analyze the way therapy looks in entertainment, discuss the way psychological diagnoses are portrayed, and break down other psychological themes seen on our screens. As a reminder, Freudian Scripts is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your mental professional with any questions and seek care if needed. The content and clips in today's episode will contain explicit language and mature and adult themes. Welcome back to Freudian Scripts. We are excited to finally be covering season one of HBO's TV show, The Flight Attendant. I finally convinced uh, Dr. Fran to put it on the couch. She finally got me. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for flying with us. Can't you see? I'm at Alex on the plane. We had dinner at Bangkok. We went back to his hotel. When I woke up in the morning, he was so alive. You think they know you're lying? The whole night it just flickers. I can't remember anything about it. Yes, I'm your best friend, so I have to ask. Why'd you clean it up? I. I don't know. Oh. You were a suspect before. You sure as hell are now. How many drinks have you had today? I'm a crazy drunk flight attendant, not a killer. What did you get me involved with? I feel like I'm losing my mind. How do you think you're getting away with any of this? Oh, God. The flight attendant follows Cassie a flight attendant, who is played by Kaylee Quoquo. She wakes up in a hotel with a dead man, but with no memory of what happened. The show follows her as she meets Alex on a flight and spends the night with him in Bangkok. Cassie then wakes up the next morning without any recollection of what really happened and navigates the aftermath of finding him dead. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of reactions to finding a dead man in her hotel room when she wakes up the next morning and having no recollection of that. Um, and so really we get to see and follow throughout the season of how she responds, not only like in that exact moment, which is unfortunately to like panic and like clean up the scene as if she were guilty yeah. and run hide away and hide and um, <laughs> really not make a good case for herself as her uh, lawyer later tells her that like, why did you clean up after you didn't do it? Um, yeah. But we also get to follow her just as she deals with what just happened and how she reacts to it. And again, her hiding it creates this extra sense of urgency and secrecy and anxiety because she's trying to hide what she did because she doesn't know what happened and how this, how this all ended up coming to fruition. And it wouldn't be a suspenseful drama if the main character didn't in fact try to solve the crime themselves. So of course, also, <laughs> so we also follow Cassie as she, you know, after she hides the evidence and flees, uh, Bangkok, which honestly, like, I don't blame her. I don't know if I should say that on a podcast where it's recorded. 
Um, but if you, you know, if you're afraid that you're going to be accused of a crime like murder in another country, I bet that would be very scary. You can um, understand not, where she's coming from. Yeah, I could understand. I do not condone hiding any evidence if you're involved in any kind of uh, crime, especially a murder. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, after she does that, after she hides all the evidence and flees, she then takes it upon herself to try to, you know, solve and figure out who killed Alex, which just leads her down a rabbit hole of other crime activities, puts her in danger. And throughout this, we get to learn a little bit more about Cassie, other struggles and difficulties that she may have, and the relationships with others in her life. Yeah. And this is one of those shows where I'm like, how easy would it have been if she just told the authorities from the beginning and didn't weave this whole like web of deception and whatever and like try to solve the murder on her own because essentially she's trying to solve the murder to make herself seem not guilty but it's again it's just one of those of course for tv it makes it a better story than if she just tells the bangkok authorities immediately and they believe her and the show is over then we wouldn't get to learn all these things about cassie as dr sam alluded to that we get to learn quite a bit about her and how she's currently functioning and her relationships and also quite a bit about her past and what's led her to here to this moment. Yes. And I will just say, interestingly, so Dr. Fran has not watched season two yet. Um, I have, (laughs) but so, you know, there are some other things that come to light in season two. And so we're going to cover season one, mostly today, um, you know, kind of as Cassie is trying to prove her innocence and um, get to the bottom of Alex's murder. We'll only be discussing the first season. And so Dr. Fran and I also plan to do a booster mini session in the near future where we'll touch on some of the new themes and potential spoiler treatment or other things we might see in season two. So be on alert for that. And today we're really going to dive into Cassie of season one. <laughs> yeah, I think we we can't talk about Cassie from season one without talking about how she reacts to finding Alex's dead body. Um, so immediately after, like, again, understandably, like Dr. Sam said earlier, she's very frightened. She's very yes. jumpy. You can see like, and it's not only has she just gone through this traumatic event of finding this like horrible, gruesome crime scene, but she also is then worried that she's going to get caught or that she's going to be framed for the murder. So she's super jumpy. Like anyone's like, she's kind of flashing back and forth to what happened. What should I do? Um, people are making, asking her a question or she hears a noise and she's has that easy, like quick startle response. Um, and she seems to have trouble really like concentrating on like going back to her normal job as a flight attendant to fly back to the U S which again, totally understandable. She's just been through this like really horrific situation and, is still trying to figure out, like, what to do. And also trying to figure out, like, what happened. I think part of the fear stems from the fact that when she wakes up, like we, like I kind of said in the summary, she really doesn't have a lot of memory from the night. And so as the season goes, she's kind of, like, piecing together parts of the night. But also just feeling like, how could I have been asleep next to this person when they were, like, brutally murdered? And then to wake up, you know, and you know, want to uh, flee and kind of rid herself of the situation. So really the defining, I guess, like characteristic, you could call it, of this first season is related to like Alex's death and her finding the body and waking up. And so just as Dr. Fran mentioned, right away, she's very like jumpy and scared. She doesn't know what to do. I believe like when she first is covering, like trying to clean up the blood and all of those things that she definitely should not do. She even gets like a phone call, right? And like answers mm-hmm. the phone, but is having a hard time like seeming 
Like things are quote unquote normal and like nothing's wrong. No, hey, hey, uh, I was just trying to remember. I was trying to remember who's the girl, the Italian girl. Actually, she was the American girl. Um, she was in Italy and uh, the murder thing, but she was, she was, uh, she's always, she's innocent. Are you talking about Amanda Knox? And her real first goal, though, is to kind of like just get back on the plane and get out of there. Um, but we see that she's like, you know, I think it's partly like afraid that she'll get caught, but also afraid of like, who did this? And are they coming after me as well? And so she's kind of like hiding and trying to escape the country as quickly as she can. But definitely very afraid, very jumpy, kind of on high alert, as you mentioned. Yeah. And not even very long into the first episode and into this whole um and into this sequence of events, Cassie is finally back on the plane. She's heading uh, back to the U.S. And mm-hmm. she has this interesting experience when she's in the bathroom that I think it might be worth taking a quick listen to. <gasps> oh, God, you've got a fucking call down. <sighs> okay. Okay. You made it on the plane. Get to Seoul. Back to New York and then you're free. So I think there's two big pieces that come from this clip we just listened to that we want to dive into. The first is that now she is seeing herself back in the hotel room interacting with Alex, who we know is dead and we know she's on the plane, right? So that's the big... That's the big one. And then secondly, Alex is talking a lot about her uh, being drunk and not remembering and kind of attributing things to her drinking as well. So I think the first big thing, though, is here in the bathroom where she's seeing herself back in the hotel room with Alex and talking to Alex. This is what we might call her first dissociative episode. And so this is a word um, that you may have heard Dr. Fran and I talk about previously, but kind of for a... Brief reminder for our listeners, Dr. Fran, what do we mean when we talk about dissociative episodes? And then we can dive into what we're seeing Cassie talking about and seeing as well. Yeah, so when we think about dissociation broadly, it's disconnection from thoughts, feelings, or like a sense of identity. And that can look a few different ways. So for Cassie here, 
you know, there's two different types of dissociation we typically will talk about. One is depersonalization, which is feeling detached or like you're an outside observer of what's going on. So actually there's a scene a little bit later in this episode when she's in the interrogation room with the authorities and she actually sees herself talking to the authorities as if she were standing outside like a two way, like a one way mirror. That would be like a really good example of depersonalization, like almost as if she's watching herself in a movie. Um, this what we're talking about here with like her seeing herself in this hotel room with Alex could potentially be more of what we call derealization. So having this experience of like unreality of the surroundings, um, experiencing the world is like somewhat more dreamlike or unreal or distorted. Um, so the real world that is around her, like her in the plain bathroom is completely gone. And she's in this other world space, which is the hotel room where she found Alex. That's very helpful, and I think you're exactly right. And throughout the show, this is actually a mechanism that they use. Cassie, and we'll talk about this as we continue, but Cassie is often kind of going back to this hotel room um, and talking to Alex, or sometimes Alex will appear where she is and she'll kind of talk to him. I think the show uses it as a mechanism for us to get some insight into what Cassie is experiencing, what she's Mm -hmm. thinking, what she's feeling. But this could be accurate to what someone may actually experience who has gone through a traumatic event like Cassie has. Yeah, I totally agree that this is obviously a mechanism used to give us more information of her internal experience, but really could be something that someone experiences in the aftermath of like a really traumatic event like this. Something else that we see, and I think I want to clarify the difference between what she's experiencing and what we might think of like hallucinating. Um, she does have a few instances, like there's one in particular where she sees like a painting move. So it's kind of this like creepy painting of like a praying mantis and she sees it like move and she understandably is very scared by that. There's other instances later, like Sam alluded to where Alex, she might see Alex or other people in her immediate surroundings, but she knows that they're not real or she knows they're not physically there, but that they're a projection of her imagination or projection of what she's experiencing internally. Though it is not uncommon for people who've experienced trauma to in that immediate aftermath have some kind of experiences related to the trauma that could be hallucinatory. So actually like up to 20% of people in one study um, after a traumatic event had some kind of hallucinatory experiences. Um, and the, but however, these reduce pretty substantially by six months. So it's not a long-term thing, but again, you're kind of have this fight, flight, or freeze response. Everything's very activated. It's not uncommon to have these, um, kind of like alterations in perception, whether it's dissociation or hallucinations, particularly related to whatever the traumatic event someone just experienced was. And it seems like Cassie is potentially experiencing both. Like you yeah. mentioned with the pragmatist art. I'm trying to think if there are other moments where she has potential hallucinations. And then we do see the dissociative symptoms or these episodes where she's, you know, talking to and picturing Alex mm-hmm. throughout. And I think also interestingly, uh, they tend to see that people are more likely to experience hallucinations post-trauma exposure if they engage in other maladaptive or unhelpful coping strategies like trying to suppress their thoughts or numb or try to control their thoughts. And as we will talk about very shortly, Cassie absolutely is someone who tries to push away or mask or hide a lot of the difficult and scary experiences that she has. She definitely does. And it's like either, you know, like you just mentioned, like purposely trying to think and and hide or ignore or avoid and actively engage in behaviors to also like numb and not think about those things. Throughout the 
season, we also see that, you know, Cassie starts to share or open up at different times with different people about what she's experienced. So in particular, we she does talk to Annie, who is her best friend and who's also a lawyer. So early on, I believe like around episode two, she actually shares with Annie like what happened in Bangkok, what happened with Alex. Um, and she also expresses like how she's been thinking and feeling. I think it's actually helpful. Let's give a quick listen to her describe her own experiences kind of in the aftermath when she gets back to the U.S. about having found Alex dead. That is everything. No, no, I, yeah, no, I, I got it. I got, yeah, I got it all. Um, are you okay? Um, yeah. I mean... Physically, I'm good, but mentally, I I keep seeing his body up here. I get so it. So it's really no, of course. I'm sorry. I just you know asked if you're okay, and you just um, experienced severe trauma. So of course, of course, you're not okay. No, I'm mostly I'm mostly like right now. I'm pretty good. Okay. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and Kaz, I have, I have to ask you this. Mm-hmm. Um, why the fuck did you clean everything up? I, I don't know. I, I was talking to you on the phone and Amanda Knox just came into my head and... I'm sorry, that fucked up phone call was from the crime scene? I know. I'm, oh, God. I okay. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus, Kaz, it's okay. Oh, my God. Okay. Cass, you're okay. You're okay. Oh, my God. Take a deep breath. No. And then you're okay. No, gonna, you know, you're not having a panic attack. I'm having a panic attack. Jessica! Who are you? Who is that? You telling your assistant? That's Jennifer. How would you know that? Yep. Jessica, grab Cassie a Topo Chico from the back of the fridge. Jennifer, wait, Topo Chico? Topo Chico? You have those on hand for me? I think this is a helpful scene because it gives us a little bit of insight into what Cassie's experiencing in addition to what we've already seen. Um, so she describes like having, like seeing his dead body. Um, then, and while she's talking about the aftermath of also like running away and cleaning up the crime scene, we hear her start to hyperventilate and have some panic like symptoms. And Annie tries to calm her down and get her back in the moment. We also hear some of that, you know, trying to avoid or suppress, right? Like even as Annie's asking, like, how are you? She's like, I'm okay. Well, actually, like I'm having a hard time. I'm seeing his body, but I'm fine. You know, she's kind of even wavering almost, you know, she might be trying to convince herself that she feels fine or she's trying to, you know, be strong despite what's happened to her. Um, but I think that that kind of gives a good a good snippet of kind of the ups and downs that she's experiencing. And, you know, she's talking about seeing his body and the hyperventilating. So, and we hear Annie say, like, you just experienced severe trauma. Like, of course you're not okay. Of course you're having a hard time. And so we have talked about previously on the podcast post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and we have different sessions where we've talked about that, like goodwill hunting, Perks of Being a Wallflower. And in those, we've gone through the criteria for PTSD, uh, for short. And so I'm curious, Dr. Fran, when we think about Cassie, we know that she's woke up and she was next to Alex's dead body. We've heard her explain a little bit about how she's thinking, feeling. We've seen some different things with her. Do you think that Cassie is that Cassie has PTSD at this point? I think it's a good question and one I'm happy to answer. I also think it's it's kind of alluded to. So there's even a, a quote in which Annie says, Hear me out. I think you might be suffering from a little bit of PTSD. Okay, Annie, really, I'm not. Look, you saw some really fucked up shit in Bangkok. And we have barely talked about it at all. 
So even like her friends are kind of wondering, like, does she have PTSD? And I think this question could maybe best be answered by playing diagnosis bingo. So for PTSD, I'm actually going to take us a step back because one of the primary criteria for PTSD is that you have to have been experiencing these symptoms for at least a month. Because Cassie's trauma has just happened, definitely not a month has passed yet. Maybe by the end of the season, it's been a month, but I don't even think so. I think it all happens in a very short period of time. So she can't technically meet criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. However, there is another diagnosis that we figured we'd talk a bit about in the context of diagnosis bingo, acute stress disorder. And this is, as Dr. Fran mentioned, a new diagnosis for us on the podcast and one we thought that would be really interesting to cover because oftentimes we don't necessarily see it in the context of movies and TV shows. So sometimes while they talk about trauma, it really is in the context of PTSD as we've covered previously. But in Cassie's case, as Dr. Fran just mentioned, you know, she has just woken up. The trauma has just occurred. I do think it all happens pretty quickly, like maybe in the span of a couple of weeks, if that, right, where she's like sleuthing um, and figuring it all out. So acute stress disorder We'll give you some of the details of some of the diagnostic criteria. And then in true diagnosis bingo fashion, we'll kind of go through and see which symptoms, if any, that Cassie meets. (laughs) So an overall criteria for acute stress disorder, very similar to PTSD, is that someone must have experienced a trauma where they felt that they might die or someone else might die and they experienced um, a sense of helplessness or horror. So I think we can agree that Cassie yes. absolutely meets criteria for having experienced a trauma of this nature and waking up and finding a dead body in her hotel room. Yes. Um, and then these symptoms have to have been going on for at least three days um, up to one month. Once someone hits one month, then we can kind of look at whether they meet criteria for PTSD. But it's that kind of like short aftermath of a traumatic event and these uh, symptoms might come up. So for Cassie, again, we're we're right in that window of like within several days um, of the event is when we're looking at these symptoms and they have to have up to nine, at least nine of the symptoms that we'll be talking about. Perfect. So remember, for Cassie to meet criteria for acute stress disorder, she will have to have nine of these symptoms. So the first one that we are going to review are intrusive memories. So intrusive memories, this is really what this would mean, what this would look like would be memories that are kind of feeling like they're not controllable and really unwelcome, unwanted memories that are kind of popping up. We already heard Cassie say that she keeps seeing Alex's dead body. She keeps thinking about, you know, what happened in in, um, Bangkok. And actually throughout the show, we see other moments where the show will show us like these memories popping up of her either seeing his body or being back in the room of where it occurred. And as she just expressed to us, these memories are definitely intrusive and unwanted. So I think she meets criteria for that one. Agreed. Um, The next two are somewhat similar. So nightmares, unfortunately, we don't really get a good sense of whether she, what her sleep is like, or if she's having nightmares. Um, So we'll skip that one for now, though. It's definitely possible. Um, And then the third that kind of fits in this similar category is flashbacks. So similar to what Dr. Sam alluded to with the intrusive memories, flashbacks would be having moments where she actually feels like she's back at the time where the event happened. We don't have as much information on this as we do with the intrusive memories. But when she says, like, I keep seeing his body, I would argue that that is is reminiscent of having flashbacks. So I would I would say she meets criteria for flashbacks as well. I agree. Okay, so we have a two there. The next one is physiological reactions to reminders of the traumatic events. And so I would also 
argue that she meets criteria for this one because we just heard as she was remembering mm-hmm. even the scene that she was having that physiological response, the hyperventilating, difficulty breathing. Um, and we kind of see throughout, like sometimes she'll even kind of tremble or have trouble breathing when she's thinking about what happened to her. Yeah, definitely. The next one is persistent inability to feel positive emotions. This one's a little tricky, and I, I didn't feel like it fit quite as well for Cassie, at least what we see in the show. I agree. That one's tough. Like, I do think we see a lot of distress, and she, you know, she kind of has some other, like, down moments. Um, but I don't know if it's persistent inability, if we get a good enough sense to say whether or not she has yeah. that related to the, the trauma. I would agree. This next one, though, I would oh, I would definitely argue she has. So an altered sense of reality. So examples of this could be depersonalization, which we've already talked about, or like time slowing down. And absolutely, I think this is probably one of the like most obvious ones that we see, at least how it's portrayed in the TV show, that she's having this altered sense of what's real and what's going on in her head. Yes, and we have multiple examples of this. So Dr. Fran mentioned the one where she was kind of watching herself talk to the police. We know all of the events where she's talking to Alex, like back at the hotel room. And we are going to listen to and talk about a couple of examples where even she's at, um, you know, at an event or somewhere where then Alex appears and talks to her there. And she kind of, you know, has an altered sense of what's actually happening at the time. So I agree with that one. The next one is another tricky one. So this one, inability to remember parts of the event. Mm -hmm. So as we heard Alex accuse Cassie, he said she was, you know, blackout drunk and that that's partly like why she can't remember anything was because she had been drinking. Um, And so because Cassie also does engage in, uh, you know, substance use and does drink throughout the show and definitely at the time that the trauma occurred, I feel like there might be some difficulties related to the trauma, but we really don't know because it could also be related to the alcohol. So I would have to say we can't really say whether or not she meets that criteria given the, you know, the difficulty teasing that apart. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The next two Mm -hmm. I'm going to kind of put together because they go together somewhat. So one would be efforts to avoid memories of what happened. And the other is efforts, efforts to avoid reminders of what happened. And I would say Cassie engages in both of these. So double double ding here um, because she's avoiding like thinking about it and talking about it unless she has to like sharing with Annie, but she's also avoiding anything that might remind her of what happened as well. And then the next one, sleep disturbance. So Dr. Fran already mentioned this with the nightmares. We don't really get a good sense of Cassie's sleep or nightmares or anything of that nature. And any, I think, little snippets into her sleep or windows is, again, kind of uh, difficult to tease apart from her um, drinking. So I don't think we can say she meets for that one. Yeah. The next one is irritable behavior. I would argue she meets for this one, especially in the immediate aftermath. So um, her flight attendant coworkers are like asking her questions and like, why are you so ed- on edge? And she's like snapping at them. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. My God, everyone keeps asking me that. It's like hysterical. Am I okay? I'm Yes, I'm fine. So I think she is quite a, kind of like quick to these like little outbursts and she is uh, on the more irritable side in, in, those, in those times after the event happened. I agree. <laughs> Okay, the next one is hypervigilance. So you've heard us talk about this just even earlier in this session. We've talked about it before. Hypervigilance is is similar to feeling very on edge. So being very alert, kind of, you know, looking out for danger, being very sensitive or quick to respond to things in your environment. Um, you know, that's what hypervigilance looks like. So we 
I would argue that we definitely see this with Cassie, especially early on, you know, when she's um, hiding, trying to escape. She's very jumpy, right? Like the phone is ringing or when people talk to her. Um, She's definitely kind of on alert for danger in a high kind of state of arousal, as we've talked about, you know, kind of on edge. Uh, So for the last two, we've kind of already alluded to her meeting some of these, but problems with concentration. So she definitely seems to have this, especially in the the aftermath of, you know, not fully being engaged in what she's doing, being distracted, having trouble concentrating on work and conversations, always kind of worrying and fixating on what happened with Alex. Um, And then finally, exaggerated startle response. So this is very similar and overlaps a lot with Dr. Sam was mentioning about hypervigilance, but that kind of jumpiness or, you know, hearing something or something might set her off on or put her on edge and and she has a quick response um, to jump or to startle to that. So I think I counted 10 at least of those that we just ran through. So I think in that case, she would meet criteria for acute stress disorder. I agree. I think, you know, that's definitely what we're looking at. And as you mentioned, maybe after a month, if the symptoms are persisting and she has some of the other symptoms that would be in line with a diagnosis of PTSD, it might shift. And we could even argue, and we might talk about in the future when we bring Cassie back, that she might even have a history of different traumas, right? Or maybe there are other things that have happened in her life or may happen that she might even meet criteria for PTSD. But I think as it relates to season one and what we see with her finding Alex's dead body and kind of how she's feeling responding to that, she meets criteria and got a diagnosis bingo for acute stress disorder. And the piece that you mentioned about previous trauma, actually that can be a risk factor for someone developing acute stress disorder after a traumatic event. Um, Other potential risk factors are an avoidant coping style. So we're seeing that come up again, and we can talk briefly about that. I think it's important to note Um, Not everyone who has acute stress disorder goes on to develop PTSD, and not everyone who has PTSD first had acute stress disorder. Um, So they are distinct diagnoses, even though they're very highly related and overlapping. We've also talked about previously some of the effective and most common treatments for uh, people who have experienced trauma or people with PTSD. So definitely give those a listen if you want to learn more about those. We'll kind of circle back and talk more about treatment options for Cassie and flight attendant when we bring her back for a booster session in the future. So I think this is a good transition into talking about this, what I would argue is an avoidant coping style. And I think one way that Cassie really tries to seem to avoid is through her substance or alcohol use specifically. I agree. I think we see this throughout the season that Cassie really avoids, you know, unpleasant feelings, negative feelings, memories. um, And we see it in the show, but I think also those around her. So her coworkers um, notice that she engages in, you know, drinking or alcohol use to like avoid feelings or unpleasant things that have happened and in particular her brother Davey Mm -hmm. he really seems to notice that when things are tough for Cassie she starts to drink I think this would be a great time to take a quick pause and we can actually listen to Cassie and Davey Um, so her brother Davey comes to visit her in New York and they end up getting into an argument um, about his visit and his stay there and we really hear him express how he feels about her drinking and kind of even some of the history with her drinking so let's listen to that and then we can dive into a little bit more about her substance use and avoidance you're always out to make me the bad guy it's crazy I mean yeah it's so sad because I felt so close to you today you showed up drunk smelling a mouthwash instead of liquor you know Dad, he's done all the same shit. Shh. I don't know, he did better. 
Are you kidding me? Fuck that. I wasn't drunk today. Plus, you throw drinking one vodka in my face every time you're a little mad, so I'm kind of immune to it. One now. drink when the other glass is sitting right there. God, you twist everything I say to make your fucking point. Cassie, were you drunk at the aquarium today? You know, that is such a... Oh, my God. I'm so, so... So... You know what? Fuck that. Everyone's drunk to you. Hi. I am going to have to ask you to keep your voices okay. down, or you can take your conversation outside. Okay. I'm sorry. We're done. Yeah, sorry. I'm going to cover the drinks. Okay. Here, this will cover the, the bottle that I'm sure you're going to get on the way home. Davey! Oh. Hey! You just leave right in the middle of a conversation? Conversation? Is that what that was? Well, thanks for the advice, Dad. Oh, my God. Jesus, stop making everything about Dad. God, well, maybe you should stop acting like You have so many fucking issues with him that you just keep throwing on top of me. What? Dad uh, drunk and referring to you as the son he never had right in front of me? Well, you're sitting there laughing, sitting with him, drinking his goddamn beers. <laughs> How do you think that made me feel, huh? Davey, I'm... I'm sorry. I didn't know that was... I didn't know that happened. I don't remember that. I don't remember well, that. history lesson from someone who can't even remember how the day went, so... Uh, don't you think if I knew that happened, I would have obviously been on your side? Wow. You just have rewritten our childhood. Neat little storybook, haven't you? Dad's great and I'm just an OCD asshole. No reason at all. Hey, did I rewrite the part where you abandoned me when you were 18? You left? I had nobody. No, got that right. Yeah. I got out of there as fast as I could. Yeah, you did. How do you think that made me feel? I can't. I can't. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't know that that happened to you. I don't remember any of that. I don't... I'm sorry that you choose to remember things that way. Because I had hoped that you'd finally see things the way they really were. I love you. But maybe I was just lying to myself, too. All right, a lot, a lot to unpack in that scene. Yes, I feel like it's such a heartbreaking scene with them, you know, because it just kind of shows that they're both struggling in different ways. And Cassie's talking about how she doesn't remember, which could be a factor related to a couple things, right? She was fairly young when all this was happening. And she was drinking at an early age, we learn, like with her father. So it seems like her engaging in alcohol use started at a very young age. And and it also seems like this is something that Davey's very frustrated with having to deal with, right, is her drinking. And so he comes to visit and he's accusing her of being drunk. He's accusing her, you know, of kind of, as we talked about, just kind of using, he says, creating a storybook history. So she's kind of rewritten history. She kind of remembers things in the way that she would like to remember them, as opposed to the potentially more unpleasant way that they occurred or that he remembers. So also in line with that avoidance piece that we were just talking about. Yeah, and I think you mentioned a few really important pieces there that lead us to talk a bit about whether Cassie meets criteria for alcohol use disorder. So if we're thinking about a diagnosis for what's going on with her for alcohol use disorder, having those interpersonal relationships being really heavily impacted by substance use is a huge factor in that. Um, so I think that's a huge piece of it. And also we know people are more at risk for having substance use disorders if they've started using at younger ages. And so the fact that we know Cassie has this history of drinking beer with her dad from a really, really young age, it makes sense that she 
is more likely to develop a substance use disorder in adulthood. Relatedly, we also know that there is a genetic influence to engaging in substance use disorder. And so we learn here and we kind of learn throughout the series that it seems like Cassie's father also um, uh, potentially had alcohol use disorder engaged in substance use. So we know that there's about a three to four fold increase of risk in children whose parents also had alcohol use disorder, which Cassie's also at risk for here. Yeah. And so we won't go into all the details of substance use disorder. And actually, we went through the criteria for alcohol use disorder in our Queen's Gambit episode. So I recommend checking that out if you're wanting more of a deeper dive into that diagnosis in particular. But even just with talking about like the interpersonal impact and also just the amount that she's drinking and how it's impacting activities like showing up to work on time or um, engaging in these other activities that she would like to do, um, that kind of alone is enough to, to say that she likely has alcohol use disorder. We're seeing, I think what you're mentioning, Dr. Fran, is we're seeing that impairment, right, related to her drinking. There are these difficulties in interpersonal, it impacts her work. We see that she has that like craving or strong desire to drink, um, we also see that maybe she's not like fulfilling other obligations that she has, so, like interpersonally. Or I think what the what Davy was mentioning too is at the aquarium they had asked her right to watch the children Mm -hmm. and she kind of let them out of her sights and they think that was related to her drinking so definitely seems to be causing her a lot of negatives and even the recurrent use of alcohol in a dangerous situation so we could argue that now like you know as cassie's trying to solve this crime and her life's in danger and like people are dying around her um and she still continues like you know even despite all of this happening around her that's dangerous, she continues to drink. Um, So I think that that's also um, a sign for her as well. And and something you might notice as Dr. Sam and I are talking is really using this term substance use very specifically. Um, And there's been a lot of changes in the way we talk about alcohol and substance use and, and not just in our diagnostic criteria, but also just in language and the importance of language and how we talk about diagnoses. So we thought this would be a good opportunity to bring back our Diagnosis Graveyard segment. Diagnosis Graveyard. Yes. So as we have been referring to substance use disorder and specifically for Cassie, alcohol use disorder, since that is a substance that she uses, it previously in the DSM-5, which as you know is the diagnostic manual that we often refer to, um, before the DSM-5, it was referred to substance abuse. So, you know, like you probably have heard the term like alcohol abuse or alcohol dependence. And so that was the previous term that we no longer use and has been now buried in our diagnosis graveyard. And I'll also add a few to those that pre- even predated substance abuse and dependence yes. in previous iterations of the DSM. It previously had been in there as alcohol addiction and alcoholism, which you can think of other terms that go along with this, like addict or alcoholic. And all of those terms have also been laid to rest in our diagnosis graveyard. And um, you can understand a lot of these have pretty negative connotations, very blaming, stigmatizing connotations to them. And so substance use is really trying to describe it in a, in a, as a much more objective term. As you hear Dr. Fran and I often talk about kind of person-centered language, right? It's really moving away from giving a judgmental label like addict or alcoholic and kind of moving it towards the focus on the behavior, right? The substance use as the problematic behavior and disorder and not the person as problematic. So I think a really important distinction, um, especially because substance use disorders are, I think, heavily stigmatized. Um, People don't often uh, necessarily uh, fully understand that. 
them or the experiences that people are going through. So I think the language here is really important, and I'm glad that we've seen that shift. I think our discussion of substance use and particularly the scene that we heard with Davy is also brings up some good points for us to talk about related to Cassie's childhood. We've already alluded to, you know, her and her dad drinking at a young age and having these selective memories that she has a different experience of what happened than her brother does. And throughout, even early on, um, after she's experienced the trauma of finding Alex in the hotel room, she starts having these flashbacks to what seem like childhood memories. There's a lot of rabbits. There's like her running through the forest. There's blood. And we're, there's a deer that's maybe like from a hunting trip that she did with her dad. So we're starting to piece yes. together like, okay, what is the background and the story behind Cassie's relationship with her dad and, and her childhood in general? I think that's a great point, Dr. Fran. You're right. We definitely see that she, you know, tries to avoid um, and almost suppresses this traumatic memory and also other traumatic memories that she's had. I think a big, another big theme that we see throughout the season is related, and it's kind of unclear throughout, but it is related to the loss of her father. Um, and it seems like that was a very complicated relationship. I'm excited that in season two and when we do the booster session we'll be able to dive a little bit more into that when we talk about the treatment elements um but there is a clip where cassie starts to kind of ultimately start to remember things maybe a bit more accurately than she had been as it relates to her dad so let's give a listen to that now yeah and it's in the context of her accidentally stumbling upon a session of alcoholics anonymous so that is part of what triggers this whole chain of events and we can kind of listen to how she reacts to the aa and then how that sparks her memory of what happened to dad. Sorry, sorry, I'm gonna, I'm not supposed to be in this room. I'm actually in the wrong uh, place for me. It can be hard. It, it is hard, but this is a safe space to share. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna share right now. <laughs> so you all are very, you, you're really changing your lives. It's very beautiful and, and, and just super important, but I don't, I don't wanna, I don't need to take that step. So I'm just gonna head out. You're new, right? It's okay. You're okay. What's your name? Um, my, my, name, my name is Alessandra, and I am not an alcoholic, so sorry about the rest of you. My dad, my dad might have been, might have had a little bit of a problem, but um, whoa, don't know why I just said that, but you're all, st you're all. I never told anyone what really happened. Not my mom, not Davy. No one never told anyone that. Everyone found out about the crash later that day. And everyone said what a terrible tragedy it was and what a fuck up my dad was, but no one knew it was actually my fault. Cassie, how Alex. How is this possibly your fault? Because I was his drinking buddy. He only drank like that when he was with me. I'm the reason that he's that he's dead because he was spending that time with me. Yes! Yes! And I didn't want anyone to look at me and to know. So I'm... I just ran away, like it, like it never actually happened to me, just like I did with you. 
Like I, like I do with everything. I just, I, I, I just run away from everything. And I, I just don't want to anymore. I, I don't want to feel like this anymore. I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't feel this way anymore. So here we actually hear Cassie, you know, in her own words, talk about her avoidance, right? Mm -hmm. I run away from everything. I, you know, and we also, for the first time, hear her really, um, in a very sad and difficult way, confront some of the really painful things that she's experienced. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like, you know, this is a strategy that she has developed to help her cope by escaping, whether it's like physically, literally running away, whether it's drinking, whether it's avoiding, remembering things, um, not remembering things, right? Remembering things in a certain way or not remembering them at all. Um, and so here she really kind of is coming to terms with that and kind of really, unfortunately, it's like all kind of hitting her all at once, but she's like really noticing that and kind of putting words to it. Yeah. And I, I think even though this is the most salient example of a time that she like is actively pushing away the memory and says like, I've never talked about this and we only get snippets of it until this scene. There's a lot of examples of memories that she had with her dad that she remembers as this positive fun, you know, very easy experience. But then when she starts to have these memories come back in their full form, especially after that conversation with Davy, she remembers, you know, bullying Davy and that it wasn't really a fun experience or, you know, she kind of starts to see maybe some problems with the way that her and dad interacted or the way that dad interacted with her or the way that he interacted with Davy. And so those memories come back to her in a way that is not as positive and fun loving as she once thought, but actually are kind of uncovering like a history of pretty traumatic, difficult experiences with her dad. And it's really sad because even in this clip, we just heard her say, you know, that she felt it was her fault. Mm -hmm. Like she felt as a small child, like 10 years or younger, that she felt it was her fault that dad drank because she was dad's drinking buddy. So just an immense and inappropriate amount of responsibility on a child, right? When we all know that dad was probably drinking regardless of whether or not he was with Cassie, but that she felt that responsibility and then had the traumatic loss of dad, which kind of unfortunately cemented these like really negative and guilty feelings that she had. Yeah. And, and what you're describing, like that sense of guilt or putting blame on herself is a super common response to trauma and uh, one of the core features of PTSD, which we talked about earlier. So we won't go all into the criteria for PTSD, but I think a pretty good argument could be made that Cassie likely meets PTSD criteria for at least the traumatic loss of her dad in this car accident, if not you know, other events that happen in childhood. And, and I haven't seen season two, but Dr. Sam has alluded that we learn in season two, you know, some additional traumatic events that Cassie has been through or kind of like a history of neglect or invalidating environments. And, and that all of that likely culminates to that, you know, it's not just this one event that she experiences finding Alex in the hotel room, but likely a long history of other difficult interpersonal traumas that she's experienced. Yes. And mini spoiler alert, we learn a little bit more and Cassie does do a little bit more work related to the feelings, thoughts, and memories that she has around her relationship with dad and loss of dad in season two. So I think it'll be really interesting for us to talk about that when we revisit it in terms of her treatment. 
And I think while we don't see treatment for Cassie for PTSD in season one, unfortunately, we do see her start to make changes about how she views what happened in her childhood. And I want to play, there's a really impactful scene at the end of season one where she actually goes back and revisits the same exact memory that we just listened to, um, but she's able to confront it in a very different way than she did the first time. It's all my fault. No, it's It's not your fault. This is not your fault, okay? Listen to me. A lot of things will be your fault. You will make really, really bad decisions, all right? But this one, this is not your fault. This will not define who you are, okay? I like that clip. You're right. She revisits kind of the clip we had just listened to where she is in the accident with dad and runs away and kind of had been avoiding that. And now she's kind of confronting it and going back and talking to herself at a different point in her life and letting her know that, again, you talked about that guilt, that this is not something that's her fault. Um, And I like how she kind of in a realistic way says, there will be some other things that maybe you can attribute more to yourself, Mm -hmm. right? But this is not one of those. Yeah, and I think this can represent something we could see in treatment. So even though Cassie's not in treatment, she's kind of doing some of the work that we might actually see in a traditional treatment for PTSD, which is being able to really fully engage with the memory of what happened. And you can't see this because you're not watching the clip, you're only listening to it. But she actually is very calm and she goes into the into the scene and she moves dad away from the steering wheel so he doesn't have the horn blaring anymore and she gives the younger version of herself a big hug so she's able to provide some self-compassion for this like childhood version of herself who feels guilty and is able to voice out loud like it's not your fault this reminds me a bit of things we've talked about pretty recently with our booster session with sex education and with goodwill hunting of how powerful it is to have this it's not your fault moment because it is such a common reaction and feeling after a trauma is attributing blame Um, so i think we see what could be part of a treatment for PTSD would be trying to engage with this and try to change that belief to be more accurate. I think what's important to note too for Cassie or other people similar to Cassie is that there might be different components of her treatment. So while we know she's engaging in the substance use and that is really difficult at this point to tease apart from the trauma, right? Because she does use it as an avoidant coping or to cope with unpleasant feelings related to the trauma of finding Alex's dead body, maybe related to the trauma of losing dad, right? Different traumas throughout her life. And she also has the other symptoms associated with the traumatic experiences she's had. So I think it's just important to note that she would be someone who might benefit from different types of therapies or different types of goals related to both of those concerns or goals that she would have, right? Maybe if it's related to either stopping or decreasing the amount that she drinks and then to help decrease the symptoms that we've talked about related to um, her traumatic experiences. Um, I think we will be able to get into some of that. We see mostly substance use related treatment in season two, but I think there are some elements like you just alluded to with this, her going back into the memory that we also see that could potentially be helpful for the trauma in season two as well. And I don't think it's a coincidence that she has this breakthrough moment where she heals a little bit from the traumatic event and decides at the same time at the end of season one to stop drinking. And we see her several times like kind of look at alcohol and then put it away. So we kind of end season one on a very positive, optimistic note that she's made some good progress. She's done some self-reflection. She's done some healing and she's ready to hopefully, you know, turn this next chapter and, um, refrain or reduce her substances. 
True, Dr. Fran. And you forgot to mention, she also found the killer. She tied up everything neatly. <laughs> well, if, it wouldn't be an HBO show if it wasn't tied up neatly at the end. <laughs> True. All right. Well, you know, we actually have not talked about this show because we, you know, Dr. Fran recently watched it in preparation for the session. So I am curious, Dr. Fran, what are your overall impressions of the show and how eager are you to watch season two? <laughs> I like the show overall. It is, of course, very absurd, just in terms of, like, that she keeps going and doing all of these, like, sleuthing and, like, you know, spy (laughs) detective stuff when she has no experience in that. Although I did see on a blog post somewhere that someone has a hypothesis that she's, like, a sleeper agent and she just doesn't know that she is a spy. And I was like, I mean, I guess that could explain it, but that it's, like, a little bit suspension of disbelief, but... I did like want enjoy watching it and I wanted to see what happened next. I saw the commercial for season two and it seemed a little bit even more outrageous than season one, which made me a little hesitant about continuing, but I will probably still watch it anyway. It's not more outrageous necessarily, but you know, you mentioned like the whole spy thing. I will say it definitely leans more into the spy <laughs> elements of things and uh, kind of a different Crime is afoot, of course. So. <laughs> she like becomes like a CIA agent, basically, is what I gathered. You'll have to see. <laughs> well, we kind of know Dr. Sam's impressions of the show since she recommended that I watch it and us put it on the couch. But what are your impressions of the show, Dr. Sam? I thought it would be a good show for the podcast, just given the themes, you know. And uh, it is, I don't think we've actually mentioned this, it is based on a novel. Um, so Kaylee Cuoco had found the novel and had taken it and was like, you know, I want to be a part of this project and produce it and like really kind of brought it to life. So I kind of like the story behind it. And uh, if you hear her talk about just the uh, what an endeavor it was. And I, I agree. There is definitely a suspension of disbelief. It's not very believable, but I found it entertaining. And I also found it very uh, different, you know, like how she goes and talks to Alex a lot and kind of how they use that mechanism. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's this idea of the unreliable narrator, which yeah. is like someone who often is maybe like has issues with their memory or drinks or engages in other substances. So you kind of have that going um I kind of think could work against it in some ways. However, I do feel like some of the ways, and we'll get to this with the DSM-5, but I feel like some of the ways that it was portrayed, at least in that regard, was not too outlandish. So while the storyline was, I mean, it's not too far off from other stories that are like, oh, here's this crime, and now this like random normal person's going to somehow sure. solve it. So, you know, I found it enjoyable overall. So what would your DSM-5 diagnostic shows and movies rating be? So this is, of course, just again, based on the criteria or like when we're thinking about the psychological constructs, so not her spying or sleuthing abilities. (laughs) (laughs) I would actually say in terms of like the way they visually and like uniquely show like some of the trauma and like her reactions to the trauma that she's experienced um, and how they kind of weave in like, yes, she had this one acute trauma with finding Alex dead, but oh, here, wait, there's some kernels of maybe some other things were difficult in her past. And, and also there's like the drinking and then the relationships with her family. I actually really like the way that they wove those together. And I didn't feel like those were inaccurate Mm -hmm. um, necessarily. So I actually think, 
in terms of, of course it's lacking treatment so that's where it's going to get dinged but we'll see what happens later but i think i'm kind of leaning towards like three and a half four based on those constructs Wow, it's a high rating for Dr. Yeah. Sam. Yeah, because I feel like substance use is is shown kind of often on the screen, mm-hmm. but not always, I feel like, in a compassionate or accurate way, yeah. which I felt like this like at least attempted to do in some ways. Um, what about you, Dr. Fran? What do you think? Yeah, I was leaning towards a three or a four, and I was trying to think of why I was leaning towards a three. And I, I think... Almost, almost everything in it, I think, could be accurate. I, there, there were some pieces where I was like, it's probably exaggerated a little bit. Like, I was surprised given her level of substance use that there weren't more impairment, more obvious impairment, like That's with work true. or we definitely see it on the interpersonal side, but like work or like other duties, we don't see that as much. Um, and again, not that that's impossible, but I just was surprised that there wasn't more impairment there that was obviously shown. And then I think with the dissociative episodes, it could look like that, but it may not be the most common way that dissociation would present. So I think for those two pieces, because they're kind of, I think, exaggerated and have to be done a certain way for the movie or for the TV show, I'll give it a three, but I totally agree that like the trauma pieces um, the substance use disorder in general, like a lot of the aspects of it mental health wise were pretty accurate and like could be someone that we might see in treatment or that, um, you know, who has experienced these things it is not unlikely that they could have a similar presentation to Cassie. Yeah, I think that's fair, Dr. Fran. And I think in fairness, she wouldn't have been as good of a sleuth if she was more impaired. Right. So they had to kind of like... <laughs> they had to balance it. They had to balance it. I do think they showed, though, like, as the show progressed, she kind of does start to go down a slippery slope, like, when she meets um, Buckley, Mm -hmm. and she's kind of drinking more, and they're kind of just, like, in that, you know, so we kind of do see that when things get really bad with Davey. So we saw, like, an exacerbation, potentially, but I think you're right. And I agree with the dissociation not being portrayed in a way that it might actually be in someone's mind. I guess I was kind of giving it credit for showing a very nuanced and complex construct in a very visually unique way. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And it's a very good narrative tool. Exactly. It did it did serve for us to actually like kind of get a better sense of Cassie's thoughts and feelings throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for Flight Attendant Season 1. Don't forget to check out our website for resources and glossary of new terms. We'll have a lot of new things related to the things we discussed today. And please let us know your thoughts on Flight Attendant. We're really curious to hear what you thought about the show. And if you have any questions or thoughts or things that you want us to talk about when we put season two back on the couch in the future. Yeah, we're really hyping up this booster session. So we now we have to do it. Now that we've said it, we'll hold ourselves accountable to do a booster session sometime in the near future. We definitely will. I think it'll be good to get into the treatment. It won't be long. It's a lot of similar themes, but I think it'll be cool to talk about the treatment. Piece. Yeah. We always love the opportunity to break down treatments, whether they are accurate or not. Exactly. <laughs> As always, find and follow us on social media at Freud Scripts Pod, where we post our Freudian Scripters Spotlight. Um, and as always, please subscribe, rate, and review. Time's up. See you next session. We'd like to thank our producer, Brandon, creative director, Eric, and webmaster, Don. Are there any significant differences in the treatment for acute stress disorder versus PTSD? Oh, you don't know. Okay. <laughs> I thought you would know. So I mean, I'm I like, could make, something, okay, I could make something up, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>